Hey, it's me again. On weekends, we drop longer form audio of stuff that is just curated by me, usually my appearances on other people's podcasts, so people who are following along with my work can have one place to find all of it. So this is my appearance on JS Party, which is, I just found out, the number two podcast, the number two JavaScript podcast in the world. And this is a follow-up to the Changelog podcast that I did last year in 2021, where I talked more generally about Temporal. Here we dive in to really the specifics with Nick DC and Ali Spittle. Hello, JS Party. Hello, 2022. Welcome to another exciting episode. We have a very exciting panel today, and I'm, I'm very excited to show you and say excited one more time. So <laughs> <laughs> joining me today is Ali Spittle. Ali, what's up? Hey, how's it going? Good, good. This is our first show together, and I'm so excited. Me too. Me too. I'm so excited to be joining this this podcast. I think it's really fun to just talk about the JavaScript things. Yeah. Oh, so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have a guest, and that is Sean Wang, uh, who goes by Swix. Swix, how's it going? Hey, excited to be on. I think a lot of firsts today, huh? Yeah. Uh, for my first time on <laughs> JS Party, your first time together, first podcast of the year. We're starting the year bright. Yeah. Very exciting. There's that word again. Now you already remember what to do whenever anyone says a secret word, right? That is so correct for the rest of the day. Whenever anybody says a secret word, scream really loud. It's a good crush word to have. Instead of like, um, you say excited. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, Swix, why don't you tell us a little little bit about yourself? We have definitely um, seen you around a lot and... I have followed you for a long time on Twitter, but I think, uh, as we mentioned in the, the pre-show, this is our first time actually chatting together. So, uh, yeah, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone. Sean, also known as Swix. Uh, originally from Singapore and moved to the States for college, doing a completely different career in finance. And I did that until I w- realized that I was no good at the finance bit, but I actually picked up programming along the way. And I did, like, Basically, the, the standard progression in finance, which is you start in Excel and then you realize Excel is not good enough. Then you have to automate it with VBA and then you go into Python. Ali knows all about this stuff. Yeah. Like this, that's her exact journey. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but I did the weird thing, which I worked in currency derivatives in London. So I, was, uh, I had to do option pricing and you have to use a functional programming language for that. My company used Haskell. So I did oh, wow. two years of production Haskell before I was a developer. <laughs> that's my fun sort of claim to fame. Then I decided to learn JavaScript and I found JavaScript harder than Haskell. And I took a whole year going through free code camp and a paid bootcamp, Full Stack Academy, before landing my first job as a front end developer. Uh, and then since then, I've slowly been wa- making my way towards the back end. So I started as front end developer, then went to Netlify, started working on CLIs and serverless. And then I was um, Ali's coworker for a hot minute working on at AWS Amplify. And then I left to join Temporal as a head of developer experience. So here I'm entirely back end. Nice. Yeah, that is quite the progression. And I really like that that journey, like that beginning story too, because it's really like the idea of using programming in that way as almost like a, a way to automate your job or, or like as a superpower in like another profession. Just it seems so cool to me as like a, a way to do that. And then, yeah, building out from there and into full-blown development full-time and the progression. You, you did talk about this on the Changelog podcast, which I wanted to bring up because you were recently on that episode 467, which was connecting the dots in public. And you really talked about your progression from front end to back end, where you're at now kind of doing more full blown back end. And one quote from that kind of really stuck out to me of, of something you said, which was like a lot of CTOs in like high level roles come out of the back end more than the front end. Uh, traditionally, <laughs> as a purely front end developer for most of my career now, I've been thinking a lot about that. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's something that it's obviously an impolite conversation to talk about, but sure. there is a sort of career ceiling. And I've been asking people what they think about it and also just giving it a name and having a real conversation about it. I mean, it's not a fact right. that you, you're not, you know, but uh, it's interesting. Yeah. I was mentioning that and also kind of wanting to lead into the discussion they have about connecting the dots in public or, or like really right. learning in public. That is something, you know, I hear that a lot and it always kind of references back to you or a tweet that you've had or a talk that you've given. And it's really just like a, a methodology for learning and being open about not just like successes and failures, but like especially those, right? Successes, failures, and just the general process of learning not being behind any barriers. I, I really like that methodology. So can you talk more to it? Yeah, I mean, um, I generally embrace it as a different form of career progression from my finance career, which was very much uh, learning in private and going through the traditional path. And I think when I switch careers to tech, tech is a fundamentally much more open field and positive sum. So people don't mind when, they, when you share what you learn. And I think the, the only requirement really is that you have to have a thick skin, that you have to don't, not mind when you get things wrong and you will get things wrong and you will be embarrassed and people will call you out on it. But if you have a positive attitude to that, you can take it in your stride and say like, that was yesterday. That's the yesterday's version of me. And today I'll be better and I'll know more because I've got things wrong in public and you never forget it. Yeah, no, that that's so great because that I think just probably eliminates so much of a barrier that people have to, you know, I want to learn in public for sure, but I don't want to be wrong in public. And yeah. <laughs> that's just kind of part of it. Embracing that as part of the process of learning, I think is something that's often overlooked. So that's really good to remind people of that. I think it's also like it helps this whole thing become a bit less lonely. Like you, it's better to do it in a group and learn together. And you can actually help a lot of people who are just a little bit behind you. But you, you can even help people who are more knowledgeable and more advanced than you. Because if you prove yourself to be a good coworker or like a good foil for them to test their me messaging, then it gets really helpful. And I think that's something that has really benefited my own career. Mm -hmm. Something that I did actually was as I was going through Netlify and, and I was at AWS and I wrote this, I actually wrote down like what I thought was missing from cloud. And that's how I found Temporal because I was like, let's list down the jobs to be done of the monolith that we lost when we broke everything apart into distributed clouds services. And then I found that there are some things that were just not answered that well. And that's eventually how I made my way to Temporal because like I wrote a blog post and they found me. Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> So there, there's immediate benefits from learning in public. So that's great. Tons. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So uh, kind of building off of that, why don't you tell us what Temporal is and maybe touch on what it's solving in like from that list that you, you made up about, you know, what's missing from, yeah. from cloud services. So at its most humblest form, Temporal is a workflow engine where you can write uh, long running processes. So anything that, that goes beyond a single request response cycle. Uh, it's not immediately obvious why that's a big deal at all. But if you look at the jobs to be done of a cloud, you can think about, you know, compute, storage, memory. There's like long term storage, there's short term storage, there's all these sorts of variations. And one of the things that I was looking at when I was looking at the serverless ecosystem versus the traditional sort of server-full or monolith ecosystem was the ecosystem of job runners or anything long-running. Long and I've been very inspired by it ever since I heard about Sidekick from the Indie Hackers podcast. And Sidekick is the default Rails job runner. And Sidekick is run by Mike Perham, who is just one developer who 
makes $2 million a year selling support contracts on his open source software. And I was like, oh, wait, like job running is actually a very valuable thing. So I started to dig into that a little bit more. And I would have taken another 15 years because that's how long the Founders in Temporal took to create it to eventually find my way towards something like this. So essentially, Temporal is a... Uh, is a workflow engine, which, which means like it handles a lot of things for you and you sort of write things on top of it, which is why I like to make the analogy that it's React for the backend. In other words, like you write your components, so you sort of componentize your services and you send it to one central orchestrator, which is on the front end is React DOM and on the back end it's Temporal. And it helps to handle like consistency. It helps to handle uh, declarative rendering, anything like that, uh, which is a really useful mental model for breaking up your business logic. So I, I really like it on, on that front, but I'm not sure if I'm like <laughs> nailing the what is, like we're still trying to figure out like how to explain what it is. It, it really depends on your background. I think it's really interesting that you talked about serverless because UI.dev has this really fun, hilarious front-end newsletter. And this week they did predictions for the front-end for 2022. And one of those predictions was that serverless was going to allow more front-end developers to be fully true, like full-stack developers. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that because we're talking about this front-end ecosystem and serverless, and maybe that serverless may be an easier bridge into building backends for front-end developers. I think it definitely is, right? That's a lot of what I saw at Netlify. That's what a lot of what you're doing at AWS. It's giving front-end developers more and more powers, um, which is good and bad, because good in the sense that they have more capability, bad in the sense that they don't have the training sometimes, <laughs> and sometimes they don't have the same tooling. So you, you get a, a lot of back and forth over, like, is this the right way to do this or not? But just the sheer fact that there's so many front-end developers is going to help push along the market by itself. It doesn't need any any support. So I think there is a lot of growth. I think the Jamstack movement was a big part of that. But yeah, I'm a strong believer that serverless is helping give front-end developers more power. So I think... Um, the main places I'll point people to is uh, Chris Coyer's talk on the all-powerful front-end developer. And I was very lucky to be referenced in that because I think he's really seeing that from his perch at CSS Tricks, where a lot of services are just catering more and more to front-end developers because of the Jamstack movement, because serverless make things so much easier. And uh, yeah, I think it's continuing to go. I've actually been thinking more about like serverless as a business model more than a technology. The main sort of break in the mental model was actually at Amplify when we started offering serverless containers. And a lot of people are like, wait, what What do you mean serverless containers? Like, uh, <laughs> I thought serverless was all about Lambda functions. And it really starts to flex a little bit on the meaning of serverless, right? Like you charge, uh, you know, scale to zero, charge uh, only for what you use and having a very light deploy model. I think those are, that idea of serverless is being stretched more and more, right? And you're also seeing more and more companies adopt the concept of a serverless database where you also don't have to provision some instance upfront. You just use it as much as little as possible and they charge you based on what you use. So that philosophy is much more of like a business model than a single specific technology. Yeah, I did a Twitter space with the developer advocates for serverless at AWS and they were talking about this as well, like serverless is really difficult to define. People think of functions as a service, but then there's also other serverless services too, like DynamoDB or serverless databases that have some traction right now, like say FanaDB. And so it goes far beyond that. So I think this is a really interesting conversation of defining what serverless even is. 
Yeah. So one thing that which I'll, I'll sort of introduce here is that one way in which you want to be serverless is that you often also want things to be stateless in a sense that for it to be horizontally scalable, for it to be spun down, it should not have any state. Otherwise, you might lose data, right? In other words, you need to it needs to be like kind of a pure function, whatever that item of compute is. It needs to be pure function of like input, you get some output and that's kind of it. So then there's a question of where do you store the state? And it usually it's a, it usually is in some sort of database. But for me, like one of the things that was really interesting to me was that you have to check in and out of state for so much every single time you write logic. Like imagine you provision like a hundred different Lambda functions just to model every single piece bit of your execution that is broken up by something stateful. Something that Temporal does is actually it helps you write all of those things as a single function from top to bottom. And as you need to store state, um, it actually persists in the background for you. Um, and then it continues whenever you need it, you need, need it to. So I've been thinking of pitching Temporal as the single stateful service in your whole cloud that makes everything else stateless because we handle the state as, a, as an orchestrator and everything else is stateless as well. So I think it's a very interesting pitch. I haven't tested it yet, so I'm testing it out here for the first time. <laughs> so as a way to do that, like orchestration, I guess, the I'm trying to think of like how myself as a front-end developer might tie into this as being slightly more than a front-end developer, you know, jumping into serverless to do back-end things. Would I like start writing lambdas or, or like serverless functions that then are orchestrated by something like like a workflow engine that yeah like, like how does it fit into between like a serverless function and then tying into like a greater workflow or like storing off state to a database totally like uh, it would orchestrate your services so it'll be like the central brain and it'll be calling out to all those different services and it doesn't matter if it's a microservice a macro service or a serverless function it doesn't really care as long as it you know hands over part of that responsibility for organizing the central state to someone else. That is the kind of architecture that we're talking about here. Okay. Maybe the best way to, to do it is I'll talk a little bit about a specific use case yeah. because I think that is the best um, way to do this. So I often talk about three different use cases. So one of them is sort of YouTube video processing, right? Like YouTube gets like something like something ridiculous, like 10,000 hours of video per hour. <laughs> and then they have to break it down and farm it out to fleet of machines. And then you have to stitch things back together and then you have to post that upload up. That takes the span of minutes, but also the scale of this is just unimaginable, right? And so how would you normally do that? You would write the logic, you would provision schedulers to continually check, like, is the processing done? Is the processing done? You would have to write a state machine somewhere to say like, okay, if this this is in this state, and then you could like proceed to the next state, then you proceed to the next state. And then don't forget logging, because you once you've like done all that stateful stuff, like you probably just did the very bare minimum as an MVP. Now you have to start logging like the state transitions and, and how long things took. Then you have to add queues because Sometimes you may get spikes in traffic and you need to balance that out over time. Then you have to add dead letter queues because sometimes video formats are kind of weird and you need to retry them or like your services are down, whatever. And then you have to make it secure. You have to make it isolated such that like one region or one cloud like doesn't coincide with others. Sometimes it might be private or encrypted information. So there's just like a lot of things that you have to sort of write. So what if you had a single framework that did all of that for you? That's kind of like the, the overall pitch. <laughs> okay. So temporal would be what's in charge of like first this function is going to get called and then it's going to give me back something like in a pure, like a purely functional way. Right. And then from temporal's point of view, temporal knows, okay, now that I got that back, now I call this next or I wait for this and then call. Yeah. So it's kind of doing all of that orchestration. 
Yeah, exactly. So Temporal is not the only workflow engine out there. There's AWS Step Functions, there is Argo, there is Airflow. Like the traditional way that a lot of these orchestrators take a form is they have a simple JSON or YAML representation of like, if this, then that. Mm -hmm. So essentially what we're talking about is enterprise, is this, then that, uh, if this, then that. But it's not very flexible and you end up learning the... DSL, like it's just like an arbitrary language that was just invented ad hoc inside of a JSON format. And you end up like, if you look at some of the code examples, you're actually just kind of writing what looks like the abstract syntax tree of something that should be a general purpose programming language. So our opinion is that you should be writing software with general purpose <laughs> languages rather than some invented language that you have to learn just for this task. So as a benefit of that, then you can start versioning it, you can start testing it and, and so on and so forth. So it's a really uh, interesting way to do it. I think this also comes really in handy when you're working with heavy data. I started my career as a data engineer, which <laughs> somehow ended up as a front-end engineer a few years later. But back in my day and when I was starting out, a lot of the time I was using these task services like Cucumber or RabbitMQ, which sounds really similar to what you've been talking about. So you do all these tasks in sequence. So you do one and then it passes off the next piece of functionality and you can really break your app into these different tasks that are queued up. Yeah. People use a lot of these things like Sidekick, they use Bull.js in the JavaScript world. They use RabbitMQ or SQS if they just want to have the queues and then they have to, they'll have some consumers you know, pick off of those queues. But then product requirements do not stay stable. They just increase from there. So like if, yes, if you're just going top down, kick some job off and then you, you, know, you can go do something else for four hours and come back, that's fine. But what if you have to cancel halfway in the middle and that work has been distributed somewhere that you cannot really find? Or what if you want to send in some signal that changes how that thing behaves as you go along, right? So there's a lot of different edge cases that can come in along, along here. The story I like to tell about this is that, so this technology originated at Uber. If you imagine modeling the entire journey of an Uber Eats ride, you know, it's everything from like matching pricing to matching to like sending the deliver uh, the driver to the restaurant, the restaurant like sort of handing it over and then they dropping it off and then rating and tipping and all that. All those little individual functions are individual teams of people and developers maintaining their own systems and they all have to be orchestrated in, in one way. And that's only the happy path. Like what about cancellations? What about like missed drivers? What about, you know, all that? So you need to be able to respond and create your systems in a maintainable fashion. So the complexity of this just starts to explode really quickly once you start considering anything complex. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by our friends at Raygun. Time is of the essence when identifying and resolving issues in your software. And our friends at Raygun are here to help once again. Their brand new alerting feature is now available for crash reporting and real user monitoring to make sure you're quickly notified of errors, crashes, and front-end performance issues that matter most to you and your business. Here's how it works. Set thresholds for your alerts based on an increase in error count, a spike in load time, or new issues introduced in the latest deployment, along with custom filters that give you even greater control. You can assign multiple users to make sure the right team members are notified with links directly to the issue in Raygun. This takes you to the root cause so much faster. Never miss another mission critical issue in your software again. Try Raygun alerting today and create a world-class issue resolution workflow that gives you and your customers peace of mind. 
Visit raygun.com to learn more. They have usage-based plans that start at four bucks a month with unlimited apps and users. Again, that's raygun.com and start your free 14-day trial. give examples for things because it makes it so so tangible for the listeners yeah so thank you for that example and i really do want to tie this back into the front end though just because our listeners are primarily javascript developers so what would you say that this correlates to for them yeah totally that's why i I actually have been using the tagline that it's kind of React for the backend. Mostly not in the sense that it's exactly like React's model, but in the sense that it helps to componentize your systems on the backend. And that's kind of what the order that React brought to the front end, right? Like imagine in the days of sort of jQuery spaghetti code, you'd be sort of wiring up handlers and you'd be rendering out elements all over the page and there'll be no sort of organization, no sort of event pooling and ensuring of consistency. And that's what React brought with the component model. And the real contracts actually that people don't really think about is that React's promise to you is that, okay, you write things in our way, in our special way, which is that everything, uh, every UI is a pure function of data. And then you send it over to us. We maintain as a central core team, we maintain React, the renderer and the reconciler. And then we'll, we'll make sure to commit it to your uh, DOM and, and write it all for you, right? So each developer only handles the components, but they don't handle the core React rendering engine. You would never want to build that yourself, right? Like you just kind of trust the React core team to do it. And that's a bargain. You, you sort of lose control to them, but in exchange, you get much more predictability and you get an ecosystem that you can build on top of because you now know a very, very tight contract between yourself and the, the central framework. And what's amazing is that when I started exploring the backend space, this doesn't exist for the backend. <laughs> Everyone's rolling their own with like queues and databases and all sorts of frameworks to do that. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, when I realized, like, actually, I was talking with Guillermo Rausch, you know, who's who created Next.js and runs for Cell. I was like, wait, is it true that the backend developers do not have as good a developer experience as the front end developers? Like, are are we more advanced than them? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> and then it really clicked for me. I was like, oh, okay, like a front-end developer who like takes the lessons that we have learned from a lot of competition in the front-end development space and applies it to the back-end can do a lot of damage. I will say, though, that the front-end space has also learned a lot from the back-end space, like with Ruby on Rails and the code generation and all that they did so that you don't need to reinvent the wheel every single time you build an app. Yeah. I really think that's a very interesting idea for the next generation of front-end dev tools as well. Exactly. Well, for this specific part, I guess, the analogy hopefully holds in the sense that people are wiring together a lot of systems. You can see like some, I, I love to share this like complicated AWS chart where it's like, you know, that Charlie Day meme from uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It's a lot of systems that they wind together. And 
these services are just multiplying. A lot of them are going to be your own teams, but increasingly as the API economy increases, you're going to be relying on external teams that you that you pay for as vendors. And you need a way to coordinate and componentize all of these. You need a way to do even very basic things like a retry. And that's something that like you don't really think about as a developer, like mm. what's the big deal about retries? Retries make your service state full. So just because you call some external API, you now have to make sure that like, okay, in case they fail for like rate limiting or like they're temporarily out or whatever, you now have to provide some kind of dead letter queue. You have to provide some kind of scheduler to retry the service and you need to write some state into a database. That's all like incidental complexity to the service that you're trying to actually afford. So if the number of times that you make hops across systems, whether it's your own or external API systems, the amount of defensive programming and provisioning of infrastructure you have to do just to make sure that your overall end-to-end user experience is reliable. And so what Temporal does as an orchestrator is centralizes all that. Like we handle the retries, we handle the state of like which every every request is going and we tie them all together so you can if anything goes wrong you can pull it up as a central workflow that you can check out as part of a UI. That's really nice because then it's, you're left with like going back to the react analogy a little bit, like you're left with this ability to create these atomic components of your backend and you don't have to worry about that, right? Because you would just worry about input and output yeah. and then the orchestrator will help manage retries or, or like edge case, things like that. Is that customizable per like, yeah. I don't know, node or, or whatever within the system? At every single point that you're calling an activity, is, is which is what we call it, okay. uh, yes, it is, is customizable. There's a very nice philosophy of like how to think about retries, how to think about like limiting timeouts for the overall length of the retry versus an individual attempt versus how often you should be checking in for a long running task for a heartbeat. And if there is no heartbeat, then you assume that it's dead and you, you try it again, you start over from new. Mm-hmm. That's just a very well-designed system that has been born out of a lot of experience. <laughs> yeah. That's something I really like as well. Imagine if you're a product engineer and like, I don't care if you're a front-end or back-end developer, but let's say you're a front-end developer and you've been recently empowered by all the fun serverless functions that have been available to you. And you're tasked to do like a one-click purchase, right? Like, like if you have an e-commerce experience, typically you'd just be, if a customer buys something, they typically like add to cart and then they go to the cart and then they check out. But it turns out that if you switch everything to a one-click buy, experience, uh, purchase rates check out increased by 70% because that's the cart abandonment rates are 70% as well. Like people check things into a cart and then they never buy it, right? Like, so <laughs> you much, much rather actually front load that experience. But just that reversal from changing the experience from synchronous experience, like a request response, set a state and that's it, to an asynchronous experience, which is set a state and then also set a timer for that to expire so that when a timer expires, the one click buy goes through. That actually is a hurdle. It's extra friction, right? Like you have to add extra infrastructure, like a timer, and you have to make sure that it's well maintained with the rest of your system. And that's only like the most basic requirement. <laughs> There's a lot of that as well. So what I'm most interested in is the increase in product, uh, like developer velocity from this, yeah. when you don't have to provision this anymore and you can just kind of play with, oh, what if we made this asynchronous? What if we made this long running? It doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. You stop uh, having to prevent yourself from like trying all these things out because they often turn out to be better user experience. That's really cool. Nice. Now, one thing I wanted to touch on as well that you mentioned previously, I think in the last section was about using an actual language to write out how this orchestration works. What language is that right now? 
Yeah, so we have four first-party supported SDKs. Okay. Go, Java, PHP, and TypeScript. Oh, nice. TypeScript is the newest one that we just launched uh, last month. And yeah, uh, there's more and more SDKs that we will be adding. But that's really an opinion about developer velocity as well as the using software engineering tools and best practices to create software instead of writing a proprietary JSON or YAML config language. Yeah. Which is the vast majority of workflow engines. Right. So yeah, we we take actually take a, a lot of investment in the, the TypeScript SDK took us a year from start to finish to write. Because under the hood, what we have to do actually is to lock down non-deterministic issues. So something that we do for you, for example, is that for the entire system to be reliable, mm-hmm. it has to recover from crashes. So the first thing that we do is we do event sourcing, right? We store uh, every state transition so that we can replay it back to you if if you ever need to recover from a failure. And that also means that everything has to be deterministic. So if you do a math.random call, we have to give you the same response every time because you might be relying on the subsequent result afterwards. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. We have to mock out everything that is non-deterministic in JavaScript. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. Another question I was going to ask around that is, like, so it seems like around those parameters of like when you should retry or, or like, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like maybe conditional logic about, you know, this finished and now I go here to this next, did you call them activities? Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe conditionally calling all of that. It seems like there's like business logic that gets caught up in that code that you're writing to like manage temporal. What does the testing scene look like for that? Honestly, testing is pretty much you can write unit tests like with standard tooling that that you're used to. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that we provide for testing is time skipping. Oh, cool. Which is a lot of reason why the company is called Temporal, which is that yeah. if you have to wait you know, for five years or five months or whatever, we can just kind of skip that ahead for you so you, <laughs> you don't have to try it. For us, like the, our test suites are more sort of integration tests so mm-hmm. that you don't have to run Temporal in order to run your test. You can just kind of run the test with our test suite mocking out every, all, every single API. And that means your, your CI is much faster. That's a good one. But the other thing that I'm, I'm also very curious on is versioning, right? Because these things are long running, which means that you're probably going to have stuff in flight when you want to roll out updates and changes. So do you have a framework or format for doing that? Most people don't. Most people, when they hand roll their own systems, they just kind of cut over to the next thing and hope it, hope stuff works. And, you know, they, they get very nervous. But with us, because we are event source, we can actually replay, we can take the entire history of things that are in that are currently running mm-hmm. and just replay on your new code and make sure that nothing's broken. If there is stuff that's broken, you mark out the parts that are that are branched, and you can keep old code running while new code is being forged on on a different branch. So that's just a really nice and neat way to organize migrations. Mm-hmm. Is this like a an analogy to like a Git rebase? Oh yeah, yeah, very much so. Nice. There is a so React suspense is is kind of like the other analogy which I haven't really got that dived into mostly because I'm not sure like people's understanding or care about React suspense. <laughs> no. You throw a lot of promises, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> React Suspense, actually, they did use the rebase analogy in the original introduction of concurrent React. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that comes out of this programming model, which we are, like, it's very interesting. It's convergent evolution. The other thing that comes out of this programming model is that React components become long-running jobs as well, right? Now you can see, you know, before we started, you asked me about React Server Components. React, as it's rendering the component, it can stop and then go uh, get data from a database, which takes 
orders of magnitude longer than it takes to render a React component, comes back and then uses that data to continue rendering with the rest, right? This actually is the right way to do server-side rendering as opposed to the previous paradigm where you would have to do something like a double pass rendering that was that nobody liked. That's actually very analogous to what we do. So we organize our code into two parts, like workflows and activities. Workflows are the pure functions, activities are the side effects. Workflows top to bottom have to be deterministic and they suspend to activities which go get that data, do stuff out, out in the real world, and then come back to the workflows and continue with whatever else that, that has been decided. So it's very much React Suspense for the backend, which originally was the branding I was going to go with, but I would have to then explain React Suspense, which like I don't think most people know. Yeah. So I was, I was actually kind of listing, like uh, in my finance career, there's uh, several ways to value a stock. Right. You can value based on comparables like you can value like, OK, you know, I value this company by like its three nearest competitors and like their valuations are much lower. Therefore, this thing is overpriced or this thing is too cheap, whatever. But then you can also value based on some of the parts. Like what would it take you to put all the component pieces of this company together and would it add up to what this company is worth today? And so that's an interesting exercise. So I always think about this in terms of temporal. So what, what jobs does it combine? It combines a database, queues, timers, rate limiting gateway worker fleet, like a fleet of workers, service discovery for those workers, an event sourcing schema, and then client SDKs, UIs, and CLIs to work with all of those things. So <laughs> hopefully that gives a sense of like the system that needs to come together for to achieve something like this. Yeah, it definitely gives a, an idea of the scope of the problem that Temporal is trying to solve, which is really vast. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't been super involved in backend development, but it's uh, really interesting that like it, it's it makes a ton of sense, I guess. Yeah, thank you. From my understanding of <laughs> of uh, like like how I would do things on the front end. The overall impression I think I, I'm ending up towards, which is why I start with that temporal is a workflow engine, is that it's like other engines that you would never write want to write yourself. So two examples that you're already familiar with is a search engine. You would never want to write a search engine yourself. Of course, you could build your own with just database and some fancy filters, but they're not gonna be as good. They're not gonna be as full featured. Like this is a specialized problem that the people have been studying for years. Like just, just use someone's dedicated search engine when you need search. Mm -hmm. Analytics engine, like people have <laughs> dedicated tons of years to storing, you know, columnar data and like very high OLTP versus OLAP transact, you know, optimizing that, those kinds of trade-offs. So you should use a specialized analytics engine for that. And so similarly, I think that the new emerging category of software that you, I always call these like special purpose databases, the new emerging category of special purpose database that you shouldn't write yourself is workflow engines. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned that um, Temporal, what, I think you mentioned that it was started out in the open as an open source project. Is that right? Oh, yeah. The origin actually goes back to AWS, actually. So our CEO was the tech lead for AWS. What became AWS SQS? This is like, this is old school. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 15 years ago. And then uh, tech lead for AWS Simple Workflow Service, which is kind of like the predecessor to AWS Step Functions, which most people know today. And then TNR CTO left to eventually wind up at Uber, where they created an open source version of this for Uber's needs. So it runs everything from like a lot of Uber Eats to Uber's driver onboarding. Like imagine when you onboard a driver, you have to go check things like, oh, like, uh, you know, the criminal background, like their driving record, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. 17 things need to be true before you say, all right, I'll proceed to the next step. Imagine if you could write all of that in a single function and, and say like, all right, just block until all these things are true and then continue when, when it's uh, 
and just let me know when it when it's freed up. It's a very, very nice programming model for that. So they open sourced it at Uber uh, four years ago, and then it got a lot of traction at places like Airbnb and Stripe and Netflix, all of whom who've like, you know, have, have been public, uh, even HashiCorp as well, who uh, and Mitchell Hashimoto is one of our advisors. And one of the fun things that he said, which I really love, is that if Temporal didn't exist, then he would have had to write it. <laughs> so I think we kind of scooped one from HashiCorp, which is pretty fun. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, so and the company's two years old and uh, hopefully... It's an open source project that is continuing to grow and the, hopefully the commercial cloud offering can grow along with it. Hey, it's Jared again. Have you heard about our membership program? It's called Changelog++ and it is the best way to directly support our work on JS Party. As a thanks for joining, we give you an ad-free feed, discounts on merch, and even some bonuses like extended episodes. Check it out today at changelog.com slash plus plus. We'd love to have you with us. All right, so you joined Temporal and began working, and uh, your position there is, is it head of developer experience or? Yep. Yeah. So can you tell us what that is? And is that the same as like a, a developer like relations type thing? Like I'm always confused on the, the terminology and titles don't matter anyway, but I'm just <laughs> curious, like what, what uh, falls under your purview as creating a, a better developer experience, which I assume is, is part of it or most of it? Yeah, I kind of think of it as developer relations if you took it to its logical conclusion, which is that I was, you know, I did DevRel at Netlify and AWS, Mm -hmm. and there's only so much that DevRel can do, actually, because so much of the products and developer experience is decided before it even hits developer relations. Mm. Developer relations is very much sort of at the most public face of the value chain. It all starts all the way from product design. So yes, you can do blogs. Yes, you can do workshops or podcasts or talks. But if you're not involved in the documentation or if you're not involved in the API design, then you're going to have a lot of ground to make up for if like you're just not rep- if the ultimate end user is not represented in there. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to approach this job with a more holistic view of like what developer experience can look like because if you design everything with a single idea of like how someone experiences your product, hopefully you come out of it with a better experience. Like people don't care that these are shipped by different departments. People just care like, what does it feel like to go through your, your products? Whether it doesn't matter who I'm talking to, like is what does it feel like to start to use you, to learn you, and then also to run into issues with you, like billing, like upgrades and stuff like that. So it's a very holistic view of what a, what a developer's journey goes through as they experience your product. Nice. I assume that that is like a very important role specifically for a company like Temporal where developers are really the the clients, right? Or the, or the the customers of it of the product. Does it differ, I guess if or is there also like an analogy for like internal developer experience or Yes, I have not been involved as much, but there's definitely like a, the other half of developer experience which I don't really mess with is internal developer experience like 
The model for this, which I like, is from Netflix, actually, which invests a lot in their developer productivity tools. And there are three big buckets, I think, is it's pretty interesting. It basically covers the life cycle of software development. But if you slim it down a lot, that's kind of how it looks like. So how long does it take to set up, right? So there's a lot of developer environment bootstrapping tools from like, uh, I think Shopify has one. I think uh, Spotify, uh, I think Spotify, not Shopify, whatever. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and Netflix also has one. They have a cool code name for it. I don't, I don't remember what it is. Shopify. <laughs> Facebook also has one. Like people really care about like time to spinning up a, their, their environment. But then also, then there's the whole seed continuous integration, continuous deployment model. Um, and a lot of big tech companies have their own platforms for that. And then finally, there's the feedback from production back into development. So the observability platform that they that they have. So those are the three big buckets, which kind of cover, if you look at it in the, in the abstract, the entire lifecycle of software development. So for me, like I like this as a model because you can justify it based on numbers, right? If you can improve the productivity of the rest of the developers by 1% a quarter, then you should have, for every 50 engineers, one internal developer experience person just focus on that. And you, you have budget for two of them a year, something like that. That's kind of like the math that I did. And yeah, there's a lot of improvement. There's a lot of room for improvement for building internal infrastructure. So I don't necessarily get involved there. I get involved to the extent that I work on developer tools, which are external sort of things that you can buy off the shelf. You, you can choose to buy off the shelf, you can build in-house. And so we are one of those developer tools that you can buy off the shelf that helps you provide a platform to, for building reliable microservices systems. That's a really interesting way to think about the blending of internal and external developer experience teams. Mm -hmm. If a team was looking to improve their external developer experience, what are three things that you would tell them to do as a first step? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, that's a very general question. Wow. So I tend to think of it in terms of radiating circles out from the product. So I'm going to stretch it to four, not three. Because so the first thing I always think about is products design, like API design, like making, like sweating the things like naming and like sweating the things like, okay, is this product ready for release? Like some of the most impactful things that we did as developer relations at Nellify was to say no to launches. Like this thing is not ready, guys. Like hey, we got, we got to call this off. And it's unglamorous work. You're nobody's friend, but you got to do it. Uh, it saves the company in the long run. Stuff like that, like getting really involved in, in API design and product design to make sure that everything else down the road goes much smoother. So then you radiate out from core product into something that's maybe like first party media channels. And that's where a lot of developer relations comes in, which is very much like, how do you evangelize the products, whether it's from positioning, from like doing a lot of talks, doing a lot of uh, learning materials and docs as well. By the way, like, you know, no amount of developer advocates can overcome bad docs, right? So you, you do want to, you want to sort of get that in that first circle as well. Second circle, that's sort of external is more community, like sort of the really engaged users that had to help people go up the ramp, right? Because there's only so much of introductory material and workshops and blog posts and talks that you can do. And once they get past the initial stage, there's often a big lack of content. So if you want to, you want to really think about that end-to-end -end developer experience, you have to provide a community where they can ask and answer questions. But even more than that, like uh, start to really build a reputation and, and like they come to this community for answers about that general field. And sometimes I really like this area to be about category creation, right? Like a lot, a lot of companies forums are just glorified support channels, right? 
And that's not really inspiring to hang out in. But if that's the place where you talk about news and talk about like, hey, like there's this interesting paper that came out, let's talk about it. Then it becomes a real community. And for me, the litmus test of whether or not it's a community versus a support forum is do you expect your relationship with this company to outlast your current employer? Right. The other metric is like, is it many to many or is it employees to <laughs> to people? Like and once you have some kind of self-sustaining many to many connection, I think that's a really, really good community. And that enhances the experience because people can really connect and get help and get things going and collaborate. And then finally, I think for me, like the, the last group, which I haven't really solved yet. So this is this is just me thinking out loud. OK, it's third party content. Like it's the third party ecosystem that's building on top of you that has nothing to do with you. They just think it's a good idea for them to associate themselves with you because you've made it such an appealing place to be in. So you might want to lump that in with a community, but this is more about like people actually building careers, um, writing their books and blog posts and like doing trainings and workshops or whatever with none of your involvement. But it, it builds that huge third party ecosystem that we really go after in sort of late stage technological adoption, right? Like that's what people say when they're like, oh yeah, yeah. Like when you choose this technology because not only the, the core technology is good, not only is like the company around it good, but the third party ecosystem's vibrant around it. That's kind of what you're looking for there. Yeah. How do you, as a developer experience or director of developer experience, how can you grow that? Are there like strategies that you can do to try and grow that third party content and ecosystem? Or is it something that just kind of has to happen naturally? There's a huge amount of luck in all these things. Right? Yeah. Like you have to just luck into having the right people and then you have to nurture them. Mm -hmm. So something that people do, I think increasingly more develop, more companies are doing is what I've been calling super user programs. You can also call them champions programs where you give them some special status and then you give them special access to like your stuff that's upcoming. You might want to ready some blog posts about it or like we want to get your feedback because we value you so much. Sometimes it's just a naked, like very, very obvious, like influencer ploy. Like, you know, we want to sort of give you swag so you do a tweet about us but a lot of the times actually you're, you're giving really good product feedback so like i'm a stripe community expert and i've been involved in the naming of something that stripe is releasing this year and it makes me feel really good makes me feel really involved but also like i think that's how you sort of bootstrap it like you have to sort of get something going before it becomes self-sustaining and and i think all these attempts are, are really good like for me <laughs> apparently this is a really novel idea but i thought it was that was pretty natural i started listing my users jobs on our jobs page in other words help people get hired and they'll be loyal to you for life yeah. <laughs> right so uh, why not right like and, and we can show that you know like stripe has us in their job descriptions like that's also a social proof for us yeah. but more importantly like if we get them hired they will be loyal to us stripe will be will be think, saying like this is a career path that people, people can build on that's something that we can provide the space for and then hope hope that the right people come along to help us grow with it. So I think maybe the analogy is a bit like farming, like you make the fertile ground and then you just hope that, you know, the right seeds kind of land in your, in your flame. You, you can't really force these things, you know. I'm curious, uh, what other good ideas that have you guys come across that I could learn? My biggest thing that I really enforce with my team is friction logs. Yeah. So every time we're building something with the product, it's like green, this thing is good. Yellow is it could use some work. Red is if I didn't work for this, I would be quitting right now. And making sure that that's seen and prioritized by the product owners, whether that's the engineering manager or the PM or whoever, like making sure that there's buy-in for improving the developer experience, especially if you are a developer experience product, which a lot of us who are building stuff for developers, like we are that. So my two cents. 
Yeah. Have you heard of the empathy sessions, the Kubernetes empathy sessions that Kelsey Hightower used to run? So he actually promised to like write about those and then never did. I've been dying to learn how he did it and like what it's like to run one, because a lot of times people just don't want to do it or like you feel like it's an imposition on their existing roadmap, which is like they already have stuff to do. Why are you adding more, more of them to do? But it is true that a lot of teams who build developer tools, if you put them in a room and you, you give them like two hours to like use their own docs, they couldn't actually get it running. <laughs> and that's very motivating, I think, if you can manage to get it working. Yeah, for sure. And before anything new launches, you should have somebody who has not used the thing before test it completely coming in brand new so that they don't have the bias of knowing like I was in this product meeting, like I know why we built it this way. Instead, they're just coming in like as a total new user because they're going to be in the same boat as the eventual customer. So I super agree with that. And using what you build too. <laughs> if you can build your stuff on your stuff, yeah. that becomes pretty powerful that you know that it works in production and that it's something that you personally would actually use. And that's one of my biggest things as a developer advocate is like, if something is not something that I feel proud at talking about in public, I should block that launch. It's something that should not be out there yet because I probably know this better than the third party user trying the thing out. And so if I cannot put my stamp of approval on it, it should not be out there. Just my two cents though. Sometimes you don't have that control, though. <laughs> so there's a lot of politics that, that may come into play there. But yes, that is the ideal. I'll say one thing about this, which is also the Patrick, like uh, Patrick and John Collison, they were very famous in the early days of Stripe for the Collison installation, which is that for you to get on to onboard to Stripe, they would come to your office and be an engineer to integrate for you and get you manually get you onto Stripe. And I think sometimes you have to do things that don't scale. So like I do a lot of like one-on-one -on -one calls with people just explaining Temporal, even though I could be recording a video and doing it in a more scalable way. But like that gets me the reps to understand and also the long form narrative understanding of the customer so that I can do things like repitch it in a way that they, that makes sense to them or like use their words to reflect it in our marketing copy or whatever, but also like kind of customize and get feedback. Sometimes like people are just not that comfortable, you know, giving feedback outside of like a small little private one-on-one -on -one session. I like that a lot too, because that will let you really experience like the common pain points that lots of people might bring up. And then you can use that to preempt that in a lot of ways, be like, oh, I know that this might be tricky. So what you actually want to do is think about it from this perspective or whatever. Yeah. It's like teaching over and over and over. You eventually like hear every possible question that could be or issue that people have around it. And then you just kind of preemptively without even having to think about it, know how to, to address that in a quick way. Yeah. I have a, maybe a controversial opinion here. I mean, since it's a podcast, we need, we need to do hot takes, right? Absolutely. So one thing that developer relations or developer experience teams do, don't do well, and like, I'm including myself in this. Okay. I'm just like, this is very obviously something I'm kind of going through. We don't pay for our own product. The view is that you work for the company. Of course, we have to give you an employee account. Of course, you, uh, you should never worry about billing. But because you don't really worry about billing, that's a huge part of the experience you never touch. So at Netlify, I never knew what the paying experience was like. I never knew the fear that people have when they get DDoSed and we charge them for it and what it's like to you know, talk to us, support, and I try to talk it down and stuff like that. And like even recently, actually, Corey Quinn had an interesting point about AWS. All AWS employees do not log into AWS the same way that most AWS customers do. We use Isengard. Ali, you know this. 
Azinga is great for AWS employees, but we don't experience the same pain because we don't we don't dog food. And maybe DevRel and Dev Experience people should dog food in exactly the same way. Like straight up, give people a Brex with this with separate credit card, put it on that Brex, but like have them worry about like, hey, like this thing costs way more than I thought. Or like, I don't understand this billing statement. How come it's so hard to identify like what the, the components of it? Or even like for me and Nellify, like my, my, my internal complaint was like, we went from like a seat-based model where it's very predictable to like seven different dimensions of pricing and you needed an Excel sheet to price it. And I was like, what? wait, this is necessary because usage-based billing is important, but like, how do we communicate this? And are enough people at the company feeling this so that, there is a cost to adding more and more complexity. Yeah, I appreciate that I still get all my AWS account billing alerts, even though yes. it's expense for me, but I still get that email every single month that is like, hey, you spent $7 this month, which I think is kind of funny that it's like, <laughs> it's usually like the services that I'm like spinning up like an EC2 instance instead of the service that I actually work on. But no, I actually, I ran out of free tier stuff so fast at AWS. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. For me, I build like 30 Amplify apps like a month or so. And I feel like I, all my charges are the other random AWS stuff that I play with. Okay. But I think it is valuable to get those emails still, like in my inbox. Like I don't really have to pay for it, but I still see that breakdown of like, hey, I spent $2 on DynamoDB and I spent $5 on S3 or whatever. I think that that is valuable. Anyway, sorry. Sorry to talk a lot about billing. Like money is important. Money is part of the developer experience. Oh, for sure. <laughs> it really is. And that's something that I never thought about either. Like there's a lot of pain points that can come in through that part that you know, if you're working on that piece, you're just not, you, oh, you're working on it for free. I mean, you're, you're not paying to do it. So it's, yeah. I'll tell you a fun story, right? So I have a vendor that I'm paying something like 200 bucks a month for, and they, I'm going to mess up the, the exact numbers. Let's say 200 bucks a month. And then December 20th last year, they emailed us and said, um, we're, you know, changing our pricing model, blah, blah, blah. Your cost next year is going to be 3000 a month. Uh, and I'm like, wait, hang on. Like, <laughs> right. Like this is panic. Like, you know, we, we, most of my company's off. Like if we have to change platforms, like we, we can't do this uh, in, that quickly. And I had to go back channel with their developer relations who had no idea that it was a 15 times price increase on us for the same usage. And we basically papered it over, but I was just like, yeah, like did no one see this would happen? Like <laughs> this is a very, very standard thing. Basically, we're on the we're on the edge of the enterprise tier, and they, they cut us over to the enterprise tier. I don't know. <laughs> That's developer experience, right? Money. I don't know. <laughs> I have to be responsible for that tech choice because the tech choice is also contingent on cost. Well, cool. Yeah, I want to thank you so much for coming on today and talking to us. There is one more question that I want to ask you that I'm sure our audience has been dying to know, and that is, as a, a former, I guess I can say former now um, front-end developer, what are your thoughts on the Temporal API in JavaScript? Uh, very awkward naming for us as a company because <laughs> yeah. we were named at the same time as the, that proposal was released. But I think it looks great. I haven't used it personally, to be honest. Is it in stage three yet? Is it like is it alive in most browsers in, in Node? It is in stage three last I checked. Okay. I mean, like I, I want to use it. I just haven't I haven't had the occasion to yet. But I think it's great. Like, uh, you know, uh, Moment.js used to be a huge dependency on people and then DataFNS came along and it was much better. And now... The more that's built in, the more standardized uh, we can rely on it, just assuming it to be a part of JavaScript. It's pretty funny because like, I always thought that it would not happen, actually. I actually thought that because 
a design goal of JavaScript is for it to be embedded in all sorts of environments, including like really low like system memory requirement stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think the compromise for that is just that it won't be available in embedded environments. So that's okay. It's just like a compromise on the premise of JavaScript, which is that you sort of write this code some and it, and it runs in most places that run JavaScript. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I had to ask just with the naming collision. <laughs> <laughs> it's awkward, but like, I think people get over it really quickly. So, Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on and learning with us in public and teaching us in public on Temporal and the roles of uh, developer experience. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be on. Thank you so much.